0: Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. This is the word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Eropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, Nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from Their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. May God write it on our hearts today, that we may not sin against Him. D.A. Carson tells the story of a missionary to India that he knew. He was good friends with this missionary. He knew him over like a 20 year period. The main work of the missionary to India was actually, while he was there, to it, was, was equipping local Indian pastors in a seminary. He taught primarily in a seminary, but uh, Carson explains that he was a fervent, excited, uh, really, really strong evangelist. And he, along with his work as seminary prof, would spend years in untold amounts of villages in India uh, sharing the gospel, teaching those who practiced and followed Hinduism mainly that there is one God, one true God, that they should turn to, uh, Jesus Christ. He taught the exclusivity of the gospel. And Carson explains that this, this missionary for 12 years spent time in many villages and in that 12 year time he saw a lot of converts so a lot of 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 Hinduist, uh, hinduism uh, believing uh, hindis uh, indian uh, you know people in india come to faith in christ but in 12 years he did not see any churches planted in the villages this bothered the man and just, he kind of unpacked it more, but I just want to explain to you for a minute, you know, Hinduism, that's a, that's a polytheistic, what we call a polytheistic religion. They worship not one God, but many gods, many, many gods. They accept the idea of uh, pluralism, that, you know, there are multiple ways to get to, you know, an eternal kind of understanding. And they can be real guilty of this, another fancy term called syncretism where basically it just means they can take what you say is the truth and kind of merge it into what they've known as the truth and kind of sync up with what you're saying. And so this missionary was setting out for over 10 years to really say, you can't syncretize, you can't bring together who who Jesus is to your multiple gods. You can't worship multiple gods. There is one God, a lot like what we just heard read, okay? And he did it for 12 years, but no churches were planted. And it bothered the missionary immensely, so much so he came back one, uh, one season of coming back, and Carson tells the story that, that basically he had a, a bit of personal conviction, and he began to change his approach. And for the next three to seven years, and, the, and in the course of seven years, there were two churches that were planted. That's the end of this, this idea here. But it, he began instead, when he went to multiple villages, he only went to two villages, so in seven years, he spent time when he had it in two villages. And rather than just preach the core kind of you know, evangelism doctrines about Jesus, he actually started with God in these villages, taught who God was through the Old Testament, taught the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, the story of Abraham, taught the law, taught the Bible, and saw that uh, he was able to not only see converts slower, of course, But he actually saw two churches be established. And uh, Carson implies as he tells the story that I I read and and heard of this week um, that those churches are still standing today. Now, we are after the latter of those two options of a missionary's life today if we're a faithful missionary. We should be after, if we are on mission in Nacogdoches, ourselves even, as a church, Redemption Baptist Church, or any church for that matter, that sets apart to do the work of gospel proclamation, to see God come to a city the way God comes to Athens today in our, in our texts, or any of the cities we'll study in moving forward. We want to see the latter, Praise God for converts that happen over multiple places, but what good is a convert in a place that doesn't have a witness if it doesn't stay established and connected to a church, right? Well, this is our hope. So how do we get there? How do we get to the latter understanding? And, and then maybe the pointed question this morning is, does our passage today with Paul in Athens, does it give us tools to help us to do that? You see, the first story I'm telling you about India and this happening, it's kind of a marriage of both, actually, <laughs> But today, we get to really see, and and those are the questions we're going to seek to answer as we study this text this morning. Paul waits in Athens in our text. He's waiting on Silas and Timothy, uh, his, his travel companions that are eventually going to come to him. We don't know how long. We do know that while he waits, he displays a genuine love for the gospel all on his own while he's there by himself, Okay. Um, Or at least while he's there in the strictest sense, without his partners. And studying his heart this morning as a missionary, it should set, I pray, a fire of conviction in our own bones today as missionaries. It should. Okay, that's our hope and prayer. In his message to the Athenian people, Paul shows us three things. And that's what we're going to study this morning gospel primacy, gospel urgency, and gospel clarity. That's what shows up in Athens. These are the tools of the trade. If we want to see something that stands the test of time, we're going to have to see it uh, in, in, in the gospel. And the gospel Paul will demonstrate in Athens, he has a primacy, a commitment to it. He has an urgency about how he goes about it, and he has a clarity, okay? Okay? Let's talk about gospel primacy in our text here. Look at verses 16 through 18. That's where we're going to find most of this. In these verses, Paul goes to Athens. Now, we need to explain the city of Athens if we're going to get this story correctly because it was a city of grandeur. Now, you hear right at the beginning what is there. Idols, okay, right? There's idols everywhere. Well, there is one of the main wonders of of the ancient world that was in Athens. It was called the Parthenon. This great and huge, massive, glorious temple that we can you can go see the ruins of still to Athena, the god, the main goddess of the city. And, and there were thousands of gods. One ancient said that you could sooner find a god in Athens than you could a man. <laughs> That's how, how much uh, there are erect, erected, you know, these idols, these, these images. Now, that tells us, and what we know about Athens is, it was the cultural center of, of the world. Um, you know, in its golden age, it produced the, the best art, the clearest ideas, the greatest things that, that we actually even understand now to be great in Western culture. The idea of democracy was born in this city. And so, there is untold amounts of understanding that this is a glorious and great city. It's huge. Uh, it's It's brilliant. It was the home of philosophy. Names like Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, Zeno, Epicurus, they're all going to come out of Athens. They're either going to make it their home or they're actually going to be born there. Now, anyone else, even today, if you travel to Athens, wouldn't you love to go to Athens, Greece? I know I would. If you traveled there today or even then, you know, especially then, you'd be floored by the beauty of Athens when you came upon it. And you would switch into tourist mode probably and want to go around and eat and hang out, but not Paul, right? Not Paul. No, his primary desire in Athens when he gets there was to preach the gospel against their love of idols. Read verse 16 again with me. I know I just read it to you, but read it with me again. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him and he saw that the city was full of idols. Okay, Athens was no vacation for Paul, it was not a stopover in tourism for him. He did not get floored by the beauty and the wonder and the amazement of Athens. Most looked around with wonder. Paul looked around with utter contempt. When you see the words that come together to make this phrase, his spirit was provoked, this is the only place they're used like this in the Greek New Testament. And and it is uh, Paul's, uh, the idea here is he is enraged. He is gripped at the deepest part of him, right? There's a part within him that cannot be torn asunder. And the idea of this thing, it's tearing at its seams, (laughs) he's likely to come undone is the idea here. He is jealous for these people to know the gospel of a God who's jealous of them as one who has created them in his image. And yet they have turned away from him. And Paul is disturbed. He's disturbed. That's what that means. Paul's broken by what he sees. He's indignant and he's angry at the many idols. And I'm using that word on purpose. He knows that he's going to write to, in 1 Corinthians 10, 20 later that what pagans sacrifice, they offer it to demons and not to God. That's what he'll write. And he knows it and he sees it and it bothers him. You see, it breaks a man like Paul who has gospel primacy in his life when left in this city to see such worshipers vowing before such idols. You need to ask yourself this. What is the answer to the question, how can you help such a people to know the one true God to a man like Paul? If you ask that question, well, the answer for him is going to be gospel primacy, right? And you saw that. So in verses 17 and 18, you know, it tells us how it all went down, right? It tells us how it all went down for Paul and its origins. And Luke's recording of this tells us a whole lot about the commitment to the gospel that Paul has. Okay, he looks around, he sees these, these, these absolute just idol worshipers. I mean, it's this it's ecstatic, you know. Think, think of uh, like a Las Vegas type understanding or a New York City, even, you know, when you, when you could just go to one of our mega cities that, that share so much or a Hollywood, right? And they produce such false ideas and lies, anti Christian, antithetical to the gospel. Imagine going there and you're just, you are not seeing the people you're seeing underneath the people and it just wrecks you. And, and so what does Paul do? Well, I want you to see, he has a primary, a primacy about him. He doesn't go straight to the marketplace and Luke makes it known. He does. What, what does he do, guys? You remember last week? Remember what we keep saying about Paul? So he reasoned in the synagogue of the Jews. <laughs> he, he went first as his Christ had to the house of Israel, Right? and the devout persons, that is the Greeks that would listen. Okay, that would have been his eight to five. But remember, Paul's alone, and he's got to eat, and he's got to live, and he's got to do life in Athens. So where does he go to do life? Well, he goes where everybody goes, and in the marketplace, it says, every day. Every day, he's in the marketplace as everyone else. Now, Paul is still under the mandated plan of God, to, for God to disclose himself, his nature, who he is uh, through the scriptures. Even his plan of redemption was to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. And so Paul's under that and he obeys that. You see that here, but you also see the nations, don't you? And uh, Luke records for us proof that Paul is not a man that takes a vacation. I mean, this dude is not just a Sunday, Wednesday church going Christian. He's not even a, a Sunday through Sunday preacher who just wants to be in the word He's on the streets. (laughs) He is consumed (laughs) with a desire, waking and sleeping to see people who don't know God come to know him. I mean, he is a fired up guy and he ends up in the marketplace. Now, we have to do some teaching, right? Because 17 and 18 are now talking about marketplaces and talking about Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. And if you're like me, you're like, "Uh, what in the world is this doing in my Bible and what does it mean? And uh, some of you have maybe studied these things and maybe this will be a good reminder. But when the Bible is talking about the marketplace here, it's talking about the Agora, okay? And, and we need to stop and explain this because we, we don't have anything like this today. We really don't. Um, you know, we don't have a marketplace like this because our technologies have really advanced us away from one another. We don't need to come together to do our laundry. We got laundry. We got technology right in our home to do our laundry. Right? Unless you're broke and you got you to go to the new one over on North Street, right? Uh, maybe. I don't know. That's a, you got to have money to wash them there too, right? So it's not just about being poor. But regardless, like, we don't come together a lot. Why? Our technology is done. We don't come together for our news. We just do it on our, on our phones, right? And we just pick our favorite conservative or liberal you know, outlets. Well, when you're in the Agora, you're going to be listening to a Herald. And the more conservative herald may be over there, and the other one may be over there, and you gotta make up your mind. And you go with other people and you sit and listen to someone shouting out the headlines to you. You know? This war has happened. You know, Sparta is back again. Look out, right? The agora was a place not just of food, it's not just Walmart and, and what you need to buy. It's also the place of ideas. It's the place of 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 religion. It's the place of of merchants presenting what they have. Um, in this marketplace, you know, there's really not uh, an equivalent. And that's why it makes sense that you've got these, these philosophy schools that are there. And so let's talk about these. There's Epicurus, and then there's Stoicism. Now, I'm not going to get into the weeds of this, but you do need to know for the sake of this text, Paul is there in the marketplace, and it says that every day he's reasoning with these guys. So, you know, what's crazy is um, we think of the Jewish tradition— and, we, and what do we do? We have these assumptions, right? Judeo-Christian worldview has these assumptions that there is a God, the God, Yahweh, right? And even when Paul goes to the synagogues, he's trying to pick up on those old ideas that they've been studying. They're true. And he's trying to, you know, convince them. Well, Epicureans and Stoics were the same way. Epicurus was a man who lived almost 400 years prior to this moment, all right? And he taught, and Zeno was another philosopher, and that is actually the Stoics. They were followers of Zeno. They just met in a place, location-wise, called the Stoasis that was that was where they met all the time in Athens. So 400 years ago, you had these two teachers teaching Greeks. Now, when we think philosophy, we think like eggheads. You know, we think like you know, you know, somebody getting their student loans paid off. You know, that just went to school and all they have learned was just how to you know. Like have these silly outside of our normal culture conversations, you know, these weird conversations, just leave the philosophes over there. And then we just all do our own life. But in Athens, it was actually the, the exact opposite. Uh, Plato had come along and revived uh, and, and Socrates and, and Aristotle eventually disagreeing, but had revived this idea of like, put, put the big questions in the center of your life and then live around them. Okay. Well, with truth comes options, right? And uh, what they deemed to be truth, which we know is a lie, Epicurus and Stoics—they had their—they their, kind of disagreed, and that's what's going on in the marketplace. And so, like, if you're from uh, the kind of Epicurus camp, uh, you should think—if you've watched Stranger Things, think of like a guy like Argyle, if you know him, he's like a pot-smoking guy who doesn't care, just wants to have pleasure, right? But he's not just you know an idiot; he's not just only ruining his life, um, but you know his friends. Uh, can rope him into an alien adventure and it like bothers him. Well, if you've not seen that, what I mean is, is that Epicureans were basically pleasure seekers. They wanted pleasure to be filled up and feel good is the goal in life. And if something causes you pain, avoid it. Um, However, they also were, you know, a little bit more uh, mature than that. They didn't deny God's existence or the gods. They just thought that the gods aren't interested in man's affairs And so they're they're very much just trying to find this uh, ultimate pleasure in tranquility. If I can live a tranquil life, I'll be all right. That's Epicureans. And then on the other side were the Stoics. They taught that we need to live consistent with nature. So they're very pantheistic. So not only did they worship a lot of gods, they really had an idea that everything was kind of a god. Like behind all of the, the, the things that we see and what they worshiped as gods was an idea and a, and, a, and a deeper thing about God. I don't know, maybe like an unknown God even, right? And they were very much the ones who were about living consistently with nature. They, so morals, they, they, want, they, they did away with pleasure in a lot of ways. They wanted to see things exactly and rationally, okay? Okay. You can kind of see humanity in both of these groups. I hope, as I'm explaining them to you. Now, what reaction did the text say that these men have to gospel primacy? Paul literally is like, "Y'all having a conversation? Uh, let me. T- whoa, whoa, what are y'all talking about? Oh, you're talking about this issue, Epicurean and, and Stoics. You're arguing. Let me, let me jump in there. And when Paul jumps in, he says, "This Jesus is God in the flesh, and he's." resurrected because he died for your sins and you need to repent and trust in him and if you notice at the beginning of our text it does say that's what Paul's doing right I mean he's preaching the gospel there were some of the Epicureans there were some of the Stoics and if you skip on down to the end of 18 they have a problem because Paul's preaching Jesus and the resurrection Jesus and the resurrection now what kind of reaction do they have to this It's not a good reaction, right? Do you see the word babbler? They ask the question, what does this babbler say, right? Who does this babbler say? uh, What what does he wish to say? Um, That is essentially them calling Paul a scrap eater, okay? It was a term used to, to describe the birds that would show up at the marketplace. And you know, if you've ever been to any kind of like pier or something, what does a bird do when a little bit of a crumb is on the ground? They're bold, right? They sneak in, they snatch it up, and they make it theirs. And these arrogant philosophers are saying, who does this person think he is taking our scraps? So they're kind of accusing Paul of taking all these these, these ideas that they have, and he's trying to teach some new thing. They're very derogatory. They make fun of Paul. And if it wasn't that, their other reaction uh, is, you know, that's their prideful reaction. A bit softer was, hey, he must be teaching strange divinities, or that is, demons. He must be teaching like the demons do. An evil teaching. I mean, the irony of that, right? (laughs) For them to say that Paul's a demon teacher. So Paul will be asked to engage uh, in our our next point. But first, I want to cover something. You see, here's what gospel primacy does. That's the context, sure. That's the teaching. Now listen. And listen closely here, uh, Bible students. Some commentators will point to Luke's inclusion of this, this, uh, this passage of Scripture Uh, of Paul's interactions, and they'll accuse Paul of a different approach. They'll speak negatively of Paul in this passage and his willingness to interact with these pagan philosophers. Um, The minimal impact that he has at Athens, they'll point to it. They'll say, look, only two people even seem to believe, if maybe a few more, which couldn't be more than two. They'll point to things like one passage in 1 Corinthians. You know, the next city that Paul will go to is Corinth, right? If you look in your Bible here. And then they'll say that, look, in 1 Corinthians, didn't he say that he resolved to just preach Christ in Christ crucified? And they're almost trying to say, maybe Paul's alluding to the fact that he was making a mistake in Athens. And I just want to tell you that though that is an option, as I've studied and really come to my own wrestlings with this this week, I just vehemently disagree with that reading of the scripture. And so I'm going to preach it differently for that reason. I think it's a poor reading. I think it's a poor understanding of a guy like Paul who has gospel primacy on his mind every single place he goes. I think to say that what we're about to look at in big chunks that you heard read explicitly to you, his message, though it is filled with what looks like to be you know, not a lot of solid like doctrine about who is Jesus and who is Christ and the atonement, I think Paul actually was, was doing that immensely. I mean, I think even before he gets called, why do they even call him? It's not because he's trying to come up with a new idea that matches theirs. He's preaching Jesus and him resurrected. You've already seen that. And so there's no reason as we talk, as we take a deep dive into Paul's, you know, the way he goes about presenting the gospel to the Athenians, there's no reason for us to think that, you know, he's just given up like his primary call. I think it's a really sinister reading that lacks grace for the powerful gospel commitment Paul has to preach. Now you can study it on your own, and I think you're going to come to the conclusion of this with me. But from here on, our text is going to take a deep dive into gospel preaching among pagans. And Paul will display his incredible talent and gift for sharing the gospel with people that are really heathen. You know, people that are absolutely separated from any presupposition, any pre-thought, any, any helpful thought about God. Okay, he's not in, the, uh, in Jerusalem. He's not in the synagogue. He's the people who have, by God's sovereignty, been entirely cut out from the promises of God in all their existence and in many, many more existences prior to them. And so he's different, but I want you to notice in closing this first point, which you may have missed. Paul did start in the synagogue as he was commanded by our Lord's example. Paul in his spare time took no time off, right? I mean, if you're looking for an equivalent, be in the church, right? Be a disciple. Plug into your church covenant. Love God among other Christians. Love them well, right? Serve them. Like be first, right? Especially it says to the household of the saints, like be the first one there to be with God's people, commune, fellowship. What is that hot fire of fellowship gonna do to you though? Because if that hot fire of Christian fellowship is not leaving you maybe tired at the end of it, tired at the end of your workday maybe, but if it isn't in that exhaustion, in that difficulty, got you hopeful on the, on the edge of Paul's steps to the agora, you need to think twice about your religion, my friend it may be just that. It may just be dead religion. Paul gives an example here of what a, what a Christian must do. He goes first to be fed and to feed others. Now he's called to the first. This is the latter, right? But he's also called to the first. Don't you believe Paul was worshiping when they did the things that he wasn't responsible for in the synagogue? I do. I bet he, when he heard, read the psalm or the scroll of Isaiah before he himself was asked to teach in the synagogue and then brought the gospel forward, I bet he was being filled up. But Paul takes his nurturement and he says, let me break it into a thousand pieces, to feed a few. And he does, man. And so I think it, the text here says, yeah, he started in the synagogue, but in his spare time, he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection among pagans. He goes out there knowing, I'm not going to get fed anything. I I probably just bored y'all to tears with Epicurus and, 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 you know, Zeno and their teachings. Imagine Paul, I mean, having to sit there. And for him, it's not like, oh, for him, it's like, I cannot wait. Edge of his seat, right? He's waiting for the Epicurean to finish his discourse on pleasure. So he can say, I have a question for you. What does man get if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? Now, we don't have in text that Paul asks that. But you know who asked that question? Jesus did. And so I just imagine, and I'm sure you can with me, Paul gets to this invitation we get, and it's because of his commitment to be willing to do both. We shouldn't look with, you know, disdain. Now, before we move on, let me say a few things that should really move us to action as we study this text today. If you're a believer in Christ today, you should be as moved as Paul when you look out in our world today. You should be as disturbed as Paul was when he came into Athens you know for a long time evangelism in North America we've made a lot of assumptions that lost people know God as we know God I mean when I got trained in evangelism at our seminary and I love it I love the stuff we got trained in I, what we're training in right now still assumes that I can come to someone on the street and just pick up and get them to Jesus his life his death his burial his resurrection and the full atonement they have will they place their faith in him and it assumes that that person knows who Yahweh is, who God is. That could be a dangerous assumption. Now, I'm not trying to condemn like, evangelistic methods that make a primary aspect of the saving power of the gospel. But like that missionary in India, do you want to spend your wheels for 12 years seeing converts that do profess faith and are baptized and trust Jesus, but then they, they, don't, they don't stay with the church? No church exists for them? That kind of evangelism is a wash. And it's not the biblical evangelism. I'm not telling you you got to be the best apologist and destroy every argument, but I'm telling you right now, there are not as many people in cultural Christian East Texas that you would maybe assume know things about God and begin to try to get to Jesus that you don't need to realize this Holy Spirit may be actually having you need to back up and say, you know what? I'd love to continue talking to you about who Jesus is, but something you just said makes me think that you may not even know that God created the world. Do you know that God created the world? You see what I'm saying? You'll never think that way until you see them the way Paul sees the people of Athens. Now, Paul was raised in Tarsus. You could say he had a PhD of sorts in Greek stuff, but I'm telling you, you don't need that. Go get it. I celebrate you getting it, but you don't need it because what Paul had, you do have if you're born again. You have the Holy Spirit. If you notice, it was the Spirit that provoked Paul, right? His spirit was provoked. Well, what is in a man that's born again? God's own spirit. Got, God hates idols more than me and you do, friends, right? So I'm just telling you get a heart like Paul where you can see people and it breaks your heart. I mean, some Christians think the, that the opposite of love is hate. That's not the opposite of love. Tim Keller once said the opposite of love is indifference, just not caring. You want to know what the opposite of love is? Don't care. That's the opposite of love. Because when you love something or someone, even someone you don't know, and you see them loving something that will destroy them, you will hate that thing that's going to destroy them the way Paul hated the idols of Athens. That's real love. If you don't care, right? Let them have their views. Let them go where they go, right? And that's your disposition toward people who are dying apart from the gospel and going to hell? Friend, you don't love them. So be warned about the indifference that can creep into the life of a missionary. Be thinking when you see sin or you see idols or you see someone worshiping idols in our world because we have equivalents, right? Right? When you see a TikToker or when you see someone stopping in the middle of a street to take a selfie, you know? Be broken, friend. Be broken, brother and sister in Christ. The opposite of love is it's not It's not hate. It's indifference. I'll say it like this. I love my daughters. If some man came after one of them, I would hate him. And I would hopefully stop him, right? I, I, I would. And that, that hate is my love in action, right? The opposite of love for my daughters would be to not care as they're carted away by an evildoer. That's shocking when you think about a father's love, Right? And yet it says our God yearns for us. He's jealous over us. There is a jealousy of God that wants to come through the means of grace of you preaching the gospel to someone so that they can know that God demands their all and he hates their idols and he has sent his son to make a way for them. How will they hear it unless you preach? No, I digress, but Paul in Athens displays gospel primacy. I hope you see that. Maybe a point of context uh, you know, could be also you know, we call this place that he's invited to the Aeropagus. Ares was the god of war, right? And the Romans call him Mars. And so this place is called Mars Hill. And God's primacy, the gospel primacy Paul had, was able to take Paul to the spot. Where now, he needs an urgency, and that's point two, okay? So point two is this, and these are shorter points going forward, just so you know. Uh, Urgency does not mean rushed, okay? It means, one uh, dictionary helpfully calls it, an earnest and persistent quality, insistence. And uh, that's what Paul displays here in the recorded message that Luke has left for you and me, He has an earnest and persistent and a very quality uh, message to give regarding the gospel. Most of these times spent on Mars Hill when you're invited to talk here uh, would have been two to three hours. So what you have that I read in a couple minutes and that we're gonna talk about for just a few minutes was likely a much longer explanation that that Paul did. Now, his message has three points, All right, before he's apparently cut off. The first point is there is one true God, the creator of all. His second point is there is one way to worship that God. And then thirdly is God has risen from the dead. And then he's cut off. That's all of his message in the next verses that you see printed after uh, verse 18 and 19. When he's invited in to spend time uh, after 2021. 20, 20, now, The first point we need to see, there is one true God. Notice Paul's approach when he comes to these pagan ideas. And he has to, the gospel primacy has landed him there. This isn't a place where they would come together and think Supreme Court. Because at one time in Athens, it was like that. They would decide massive, massive decisions. They would bring criminal trials there as well, and they would try murderers or traitors to the state. They would do those things in this group, but they would also listen to ideas. And this time, only this time, it seems like Paul's not there to be criminalized. He's there to be mocked, actually, and investigated because is he teaching something weird? And, you know, did you hear when I read in verse 21, the Athenians, they're they're the worst, right? They're the people who are always wanting something new. So like they're they're never okay with like what's old. They always want what's something new, right? Keeping up with the Joneses, right? I mean, it's easy to fall into this trap, you know? And that's what they're doing. But notice Paul's approach. When he goes to tell them there's one true God and he's the creator of all things, he does it in a way that he's not angry, right? All Paul's anger is privately told to us and within him. Do you notice that? I mean, he's... He's righteously indignant. He's gripped with a hatred for idols. And he speaks in such a way here that is very respectful. And he starts not in a deceptive or a condescending way. He does it in a winsome way. Now, you need to see, Paul knows what's called their presuppositions. If you're taking notes, you should write down the word presuppositions. You see, that's the idea that they live and think by by sometimes something that they don't even know. They have a proclivity to think a certain way, and Paul is interacting with the way that they think. He approaches them in a persuasive way. He's not like a bull in a china shop, right? He he's, And this is super important when sharing. Even if you don't know what someone believes, better to have a spirit about you of, of care and concern for what they believe, right? So that you can reveal to them that your concern for them is, uh, you know, much more severe than they realize. And so though this first point that he gives is his longest, it's actually the simplest to comprehend. These Athenians, they have it wrong when they worship all these gods, right? They have it wrong and are even worried that they've missed one. You know, that's this altar to an unknown god. You know, it's, it's this deep paranoia that Paul points to in them that they feel as though they must worship something. And Paul's trying to show them, you've erred in this way, you worship creation rather than the creator. That's the, the root of what he's trying to say as he talks about their, in this long way of, of pointing out to them what they think. Now, verse 27, the, the latter half of it says that you know Paul was telling them, this God, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for, and then he says, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Okay, well, that... That really concluded Paul's first point. But did you notice how he just concluded the point? He didn't quote scripture. I mean, he has before, right? When he's in the Jews, in the synagogues, what's he telling the Jews? This is what Joel said. This is what Amos said. This is what the prophet Habakkuk meant. This is what it means to, right? But he doesn't have anything like that to build on here. And so what does Paul do in hopes to get these people to the scriptures? He quotes their people to them, to them. He quotes their own poets. Now, this is pretty interesting. Here we have a born-again Christian missionary quoting pagan, secular, not true philosophers. And yet he's showing even your own philosophers are grasping with what they have at something that I'm here to tell you is a real thing, the God. Who created all things. Now, how did he find that? Well, he either heard it in the time that he had spent in the marketplace, or more than likely, most scholars agree he's studying these things. Paul has, in his devotedness to scripture, has also been enough of a nuanced person of a human to understand and spend time with the arts, with the the, the modern vernacular. Now you must be careful here, right? You must be careful. Paul only studies the pagans as far as he can understand where they are basically trying to arrive at a truth about God and then robbing it, taking it from God. And he never goes past that. But anyway, it brings us into our, his second point, that there's only one way to worship God. He brings out, hey, look, you, you know, his urgency, his carefulness says there's a one true God, creator of all. And now he brings them to see that they need to understand how they're interacting with him. You notice how Paul explains who God is as a creator to them, right? And then his second point, what does he do? He launches into what they should not do. You notice that? Look look at it with me, okay? He's finishing up there in 28, right? Quoting them, in God, in in God you move and you have your being. Indeed, you're his offspring. 29, being in God's offspring, we ought not to think. You see that? What does that sound like? Creation and then what you shouldn't do. That sounds like the Pentateuch. That sounds like Genesis. God created it all, has a beautiful plan. He'll work evil for good even, see Joseph. Oh no, evil's still being worked, Exodus. But what comes out of all of this deep, dark enslavement? Law. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to an idol. You shall keep my Sabbath. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet. That's the way the canon of scripture unfolded, right? Creation and law don't do. So you know what to do, right? Even in Paul's understanding here, do you feel the Bible in this in this talk? You should. And that's what Paul's point is. He's trying to show them on terms they understand you understand him to be this Creator God. You have as being him. I tell you, you shall not. And what does Paul say? Let's finish it for him. Being in God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like or likened unto what gold or silver or stone. So he's not like the Parthenon, and he's not like the god to Dionysus, the god of wine, and he's not the right. He's not like silver and gold and and what you hold in your pocket and worship. No, no, no. He's not like that. Don't approach him in that way. Lick Duncan once wrote, there's two ways to commit idolatry. Quote, you can worship something other than the one true God. That's way one. There is another way as well. You can worship the one true God by some other means than those that he has appointed. Paul's after both here in Athens. The one way Paul preaches urgently is repentance let's just read him here and leave the words of scripture with 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 us for the explanation look at verse 30 and 31 again at this point now he says very explicitly the times of ignorance god overlooked but now now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed now there's no mistaking paul's words here is there He's not vague. The gospel's not vague. See, there is a fixed appointed time for all of us to be judged by God. Okay? And and he says God's overlooking in previous ignorant times. You see that in your Bible, right? God overlooked the ignorance. Does not mean that God was saving everybody. That's not what that means. It is not speaking positively about past disobedience. It is actually speaking negatively about future disobedience at this point in redemption history. In other words, if, God's ju- if God judged those in the past for their failure to trust him by faith, to provide a future redeemer, Paul's showing up saying, how much more will he judge those who fail to trust him now when he has provided that redeemer? Do you see this? This explains the, the, the discontinuities we see between old and new covenant. They find all their hope in Jesus, no doubt. But how much more if you have Christ incarnate, Christ has walked the earth, Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has ascended, Christ will come. How much more do we, Athenians, you, how much more are you accountable to your idol worship? God commands now. He commands every one of us to repent. Why? Because he's fixed a day. He's fixed a day the day of reckoning. That's the purpose of Paul's second point, to get underneath the Athenian idol uh, worship and expose it for what it is. Their worship of idols is fodder for the fires of eternal hell. That's what it is. And they need to repent. They need a full 180 degree, stolen from the Greek terms, by the way, stolen from the war that they would have understood as having been conquered. They need repentance, an about face, a 180 degree relationship change with what they think is God. It's not. And that is the purpose of Paul here. He is provoking the just judge. He's laying God down on the table between Epicurus and Stoicism and saying, you're all wrong. This is God. Now, we can really learn a lot from Paul's urgency to help us in our evangelism. So before we kind of conclude, let me just encourage you. Paul had a patient urgency. Did you notice that? I mean, yeah, I'm preaching fire and brimstone with them here at the end, but that's his shorter point that Luke leaves. Instead, we got all these verses where he's like interacting with them. He's quoting them. He's giving them this long, do you see the patience? Oh, friend, know your Bible better. Do you see the patience of God? Thousands of years, risings and fallings of nations and peoples to at the right time he sends his son. Oh, the patience of God. A good evangelist is a patient evangelist. Paul is patient with these people. Most of our current day approaches to evangelism demand casting the pearl of the gospel truths before someone very quickly. You know, Jesus warned against that. Now, granted, it's an indictment on the the Gentile woman who is bothering him while he's walking around. but, But Jesus said, why would I give a pearl to swine? In other words, like you know, why, why would you give justification by faith alone and the deep understandings of like substitutionary atonement and the fact that you can live every life, right? Why would you only give that to someone you have little to no relationship with, you spend no time with, you haven't thought about what they think about. You just want to download your outline on them and turn around and walk away in hopes that those core truths that they'll put their, they'll accept Jesus in their heart, right? Or maybe they'll get saved, you know, right then and, I'm not, I'm not here to just bash you know, today's you know, modern evangelism movements, but, but friends, have we forgot the patience of God? I'm asking me that. Because we can learn a lot from, there's some great stuff here. If someone has absolutely no reality of who God the Father is, Are we going to be able to help them to, are they going to, you know, maybe an instant moment that you would evangelize them? Are they going to come to the full knowledge of a father then that it's the right thing that he kill his own son for enemies? I don't know. I guarantee you this. If we're impatient, we won't get the answer. But if we're patient at the right time, we will share the gospel. Now, let me caveat by saying oftentimes the teaching of why we can benefit from Paul's urgency, it's also not good for us because we just don't share the gospel at all. <laughs> so if you've got to start somewhere and it's only to pick up and go tell someone that Jesus is God, he died, he rose again, and one day he's coming back, hear me, friend, keep doing that and growing that. But I think as you grow in it, you're going to run into more Athenians. You're going to be able to see better, and you're going to see idols better, and your God, because he loves you, he's going to put you in more places where you get to do a little bit more, not less, never less, but certainly more. So I think as evangelists, we got to grow in our patience. People today are a lot like the people of Athens, right? They're pluralistic, even in, even in our area, right? They're like, yeah, okay, give me Jesus, Give me a little bit of Roman Catholicism. Give me some easy believism. Give me a little bit of this, right? We're all in this together, right? Coexist, right? We're all moving eventually the same way. Let's, let's go out there and say, look, yeah, people are groping. Like Paul said, right? We were, we were all kind of looking for a way, but I tell you, there's one God who has shown up and said, this is the way, the truth, and the life. That's where Paul goes. Anyway, Paul was willing to interact, read pagan philosophers. Is there any application for us here? You know, we cannot conclude that Paul endured the evil that's associated with them. So don't try to justify R-rated or X-rated material in the name of evangelism out of this sermon. All right, Don't be so foolish. But man, you you can read and know the lies of the enemy, right? You can read and know the lies of the enemy of the age generally as Paul did so that when you come to them with, with the gospel... Right? And they want to say, I don't need your gospel. Or maybe they say, oh, yeah, I need your gospel in addition to my. You can say, hold on, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. Yeah, I understand that you think Buddhism you know, offers this hope. But, but, but do you understand, though, that like, there's no hope in that? This is the real hope. You know, I, I understand you, you say your agnosticism is a grasp of God, you know, but just nothing explicitly made. Don't you know it's just better to have hope in explicit? Like, here is, here is a, a Jesus you can touch and hold and spend time with. Does that make sense? There's a lot we can learn. That's point two. Last point. Paul shows up in Athens, gospel primacy. He has a gospel urgency. Let's conclude by seeing his gospel clarity. The content of gospel clarity here is simple. The resurrection. <laughs> you want to know what Paul was very clear about? Notice the final point of his sermon at Mars Hill that we didn't cover in point two. You remember what I said? Right. There is a God. Don't worship him wrong. And now he says God has risen from the dead. And this one gets cut short. (laughs) Well, now we can cover it because Paul's essentially cut off. I mean, he's essentially stopped here. But let's see and understand this together. In verse thirty one again through thirty four. Look with me. Thirty one says, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Last point. Now, what happens? Look at 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And the sum is really a, a wrong word. Majority is what it should be. Most mocked. Others said, we'll hear you, hear you again about this. To which you may ask of the text, well, where's the rest of that at? Well, Luke doesn't record it. You know why? Because it didn't go over well. It didn't go over well. What, what did happen? Uh, 34. But some, that's right, men joined him and believed among whom also were one of the leaders of this group that's investigating him, okay? One of the members of the, of the, uh, the Arapa guy, Dionysius, uh, which is awesome. His name is literally like named after the God of like wine and, and fertility and pleasure and parties. Uh, so this guy gets saved. Praise God for that. And a woman named Damaris, she must've been a woman of high standing, and then some, and others with him. That couldn't be more than two. So Paul sees about four, maybe, people that come out of this time spent there. Okay, so Paul could have gone any direction with these people, right? Why the resurrection? Well, friends, listen, I think Paul shows gospel clarity here. Another reason why I don't think he's making a mistake. One thing we did not cover earlier is that the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers both agree on one thing despite their hate for one another. The one thing they both agree on is that you have this life to do things and you have nothing beyond it. They did. They dismissed in their own way, with their own nuances, any weight on the eternality of a soul. They just did away with it. They just, they didn't care. Epicurus, pleasure. You live for this life. Stoics, you live for this life. This was something they agreed on. And oh, the wisdom of God. They both agree that with this life that we have it and that's it, they do not believe in a bodily resurrection. They don't take seriously a conscientious afterlife. So if there's anything about the gospel message that they would easily be offended by and easily reject it as foolish, it's gonna be the resurrection. So why in the world is the one thing that Paul is gonna hold out to them as his main point, the resurrection? Now, what's up with that? (laughs) Is Paul just being a jerk here? He knows what'll get a row out of him. No, friend, here's what he's doing. He's preaching the gospel. You see, gospel primacy that leads to gospel urgency, it gives gospel clarity. And if there's one thing that Paul can emphasize to offend these brothers and sisters, only two of them that proved to be that, but if there's anything that's going to really get them, it's going to be, can they get the resurrection? Let me say it like this. Paul could have emphasized the abundant life we have in Christ. Isn't that true? I mean, didn't John 10, didn't Jesus say, I come to give you life and give it to you what? Abundantly. Couldn't he stand there and say, Jesus gives abundant life? And that'd be a true thing? You know what they would have done? Oh yeah. Give me some abundant life. I, I love that. That, that. that sounds like my truth. <laughs> but Paul doesn't. Paul could have emphasized the love of God. How if they repent and trust Christ, they're accepted in Christ entirely for the rest of their lives. Couldn't he have preached that in truth? He could have. Uh, Paul could have emphasized holiness and moral uprightness that the, that the fruits of the Spirit give. The Stoics would have been like, oh, yes, sir. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, y'all hear that, Epicureans? You do have to care about the state and about everything that, you know, that, that is orderly. But also, that, that is true, right? He could have emphasized those things. He doesn't. I mean, he could have done any number of gospel realities, but he chose that which he knew they would struggle with the most. Also, that which is the core teaching of the New Testament church. The church, and we've seen it, right, in Acts. What's their number one message? He was dead. He's not. We saw it. Get, let it give you hope, right? And, and, and so Paul, sticking true to what he should do. As a gospel preacher, but especially now as a discerning gospel preacher. You know, it reminds me of Jesus. When, when a rich young ruler came to Jesus and he had done everything, what did Jesus tell him? Go and sell all your possessions, give them to the poor, and then come follow me. Now, why didn't he tell that guy about the resurrection? You want to know why? You know what the main idol of that guy's life was It was producing in him? Love for riches. He loved riches more than anything else. And it says, sadly, he turned and walked away from Jesus. And he continued to follow him no more. What's Jesus doing? Going after the main idol, right? I think Paul is, you know, willing to have a hard conversation. To me, it's often no secret to 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 us when we evangelize someone what will most offend them about the gospel message. It doesn't. It doesn't become a secret. If you meet someone and they don't know Jesus and they love their sin and they love a specific sin, eventually, as you guys cross the gospel presentation together over time, as you win them and you're as winsome as you can, eventually you will have to look at them and say, you cannot love that sin and love Jesus. And what offends them in that moment? Is it you? No. It's gospel clarity, right? And Paul brings forth, I mean, imagine the pressure of this moment. If he has any worldly ambitions to be anyone in the current like vogue world, he should not teach the resurrection. And what is he there for? He's there to declare, Jesus was dead and now he's not. And he will raise up on the last day all who put their faith in him. Now, we we didn't get to even get there. (laughs) They hear resurrection and they're just like, not interested. You know, who is this fool? And some mocked him. Oh, but others believe. Some takeaways. Be bold in your presenting the gospel. Trust that the truth spoken in love is the truth. It's the truth. Paul has loved these Athenian leaders well. He's been respectful, he's met them where they are, and now if they dismiss him, so be it. Why? Because he shared the truth with them. Gospel clarity gives Paul hope to walk away from here with his head hung high. It should give us great hope that God clearly had a plan for a few of these to accept. But I imagine likely discourages, uh, you know, discouragements could have abounded. But they didn't. History tells us to our knowledge there's no church in Athens that is planted and established and flourishing until records say 5th or 6th century AD. Hundreds of years later. You think about what that means. Paul sowed some seed in Athens, right, that a few believed, and we can't tell according to our best records in church history that it ever even sprouted its head in a significant way until 400 years later, long after Dionysius, the Aparagite, long after uh, our sister in Christ, Damaris, lived. They done died, and now a church is established. But someone stood up in the midst of that city with gospel primacy, a gospel urgency, and gospel clarity. And they trusted God. And for some unknown reason to us, the good news needed to hold off for a while in Athens until it didn't. And then it absolutely, by all accounts, was a city that eventually became reached. Now today, it's back to being an unreached city. But full of idols still. For some, it was good news. For most, it was a huge turnoff Uh, we, you know, we'll hear him again, but we don't even get that record. So in this silent conclusion of this first missionary journey to Athens, the seed of the gospel is laid and Paul moves on. My question to you is, have you seen and have you harvested yourself some valuable lessons here? If you be not in Christ, there is one lesson for you to harvest. Like a seed that goes in the ground and it dies into itself. And then it comes forth as something new. So Christ was laid in a tomb after he purchased for his people on the cross, atoning for their sins. Jesus, the perfect substitution, died in their place, was laid in a grave. Jesus, who existed from all of eternity past, incarnate in the virgin's birth, living a perfect life, that Jesus, bleeding, dying on the cross, atoning, was laid in a tomb, just like a seed is laid in the ground. And yet from it, God burst him forth. The earth could not contain that seed, and Jesus, sprouted in resurrection glory, declares his power over all things, and now, right now, sways a scepter. He sits at the right hand of God. He's ascended. One day, he'll come back. If you are not a Christian, this is the one harvest for you. Be an Athenian with ears to hear today. Hear this. Repent. God commands all men and women today to repent and believe the gospel. So let's all harvest that one. But secondly, I've tried to give you many ways, but do you see the invaluable nature of a message like this? Of an example like this? I mean, can you think of your agora today? What does your marketplace look like, brother and sister in Christ? Are you in it? Are you shaking the reeds? Are you hitting the highways and the byways like they always said, you know, in the the revival days of the church? I'm for real, though. I'm not talking about peddling, you know, funny little evangelism Ponzi schemes right? Or, or, or pyramid schemes. I'm talking about the gospel coming to you and then you in the boldness of St. Paul going out into your marketplace and having some seriously upstirring conversations with the Ep- Epicureans and the Stoics of our day. What liberal do you know that you're going to them saying, you love these liberal doctrines, don't you? You know, I know a few things about that. Let's talk about that. But let me tell you, my life was radically changed by the most liberal thing you can imagine. The most scandalous idea you could ever imagine. This Jesus, this Jesus was raised from the dead. And he's mine. He can be yours. Do you go to your favorite conservative friends and talk? We got lots to talk about with them, right? I mean, we talk a lot about, you know, how the Bible just preserves absolute truth and all these awesome things and rights and, you know, this idea. But, but how often do you, do you get past that commonality and say, you know, there's one more thing that's more important than the Constitution, It's the word of God, and it's this Jesus. Do you know him? I hope today has spurned you into some serious urgency. I have no clue how to end this sermon. Didn't know how to end it. I'm just going to close my Bible. But I will say this as we go to sing. Um, We are, after we sing, going to make another appeal about about coming to the reality of the gospel. And we're going to confess our sins together, and then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Let as we sing praises unto God. You know, we're going to sing the doxology together now. As we do that, think about the fact that one day you'll do this in heaven with Dionysius, the Arab <laughs> One day you will stand with a whole host of witnesses declaring praises to God unending. But for now, we get to do that together. And so let's pray And then our brother and sister will come. We're going to sing praises to God. I'll come back up and lead us in a prayer confession, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper. All right? Pray with me. God, thank you for this example of Paul. Lord, um, it is is a good one. It is a true one. Lord, help us to find in its boldness, God, an answer for our timidity. And Lord, may we find in our just fire of boldness that sometimes goes a a a away, the patient endurance of Paul's example before pagans. But Father, most of all, regardless of the strategies we may glean, I really ask, Lord, that you'd let us, let us see a few. Lord, let us see some who were once enemies, estranged like us, but now trust in Jesus. We would celebrate along with Paul for the few. And so, God, we pray that you would use our witness Use our example. Use our understanding of the way the lost secular mind thinks. Lord, use it in your own good care and providence, God, for your own glory's sake. Use it, Lord, to save to the uttermost. As we reflect on what it means to be saved, what we've been saved from, Lord, help us to give you all the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.